So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the gospel of Luke. Our text is Luke 6.21, but I'm going to back up and read the 20th verse with it. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Our dear Lord, these are such simple words, and they're also such familiar words for so many of us, Um, but they are so deep, and they're so all-encompassing. Lord, I, I just pray when your word goes forth today that it will be effective for those it was designed to be effective to, which, if I read this correctly, is everyone. Uh, Not only those who know you and are believers, but those who don't know you that you're bringing out of darkness. Dear Lord, this is a text for the world, and I just pray that as, as we go through it, that my words would be your words, that you wouldn't allow me to express anything that is not right down the line of what your meaning is here, or else to explain it as we go through it, and we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, There was a radio announcer, not announcer, but uh, he had a radio show. Many of you know him. His name was Steve Brown. Um, I don't know if he's still doing radio. Some of you younger folks may not know who he was. But but he was sort of the master of one-liners. And he had one of his one-liners was, the reason I believe in Christianity is because no one would have made this up. Uh, and and it, that is so true in the way that the world looks at what we believe and what we teach. And in fact, what I just read you is a great example. I mean, who, who's going to follow a, a religion where the primary teacher in that religion, Jesus Christ, teaches this? Blessed are you if you are impoverished. Blessed are you if you are, um, if you are poor and, and, and if you are hungry and if you're emaciated. Blessed are you if you're miserable to the point where you cry out and weep. I, I mean, who's going to actually follow a religion like that? And yet that's what Jesus says. So we need to really make sure that we understand what he is saying. Is it really blessed to weep? Is it really blessed to be hungry? We were in Haiti several years ago uh, running a um, medical clinic. We had a group of nurses with us. We were in a little remote village called La Belle Mare. Some of you have been there with us. And, and during this clinic, there was a woman who brought her both um, de- deformed and desperately ill, terminally ill son, a very young boy. And she sat in the back of the room all three days that we were there with that boy, but that boy draped across her lap, uh, uh, to- totally in- in- incurable. The-, the nurses says it didn't matter if we took the boy to the finest uh, of hospitals, he would still not be able to-, to be cured because of his disease. And yet that woman cried out and mourned and wept all day, every day, because her heart was broken for her dying child, and there was nothing she could do about it. Blessed are those who weep? Really? On another occasion, I was in Albania, in the capital of the city of Tirana, 
And I was videotaping a, a, an evangelism outreach, a seminar that we had there. And, and this was right after, very close after the fall of communism and almost immediately after the Bosnian Wars. And I think that everyone who proposes any kind of a Marxist solution, whether it is government or whether it is any of the critical social theories that we have out there, social justice, I think they need to go to a country when communism fails and sees the impact that it has on the people because it always does fail. Well, when I was in in Albania... It was a country in shambles. You see, what happens in a communist country that fails is that for decades that government had been forcing the people to depend on them for everything. Well, what happens when the government that is dependent on everything goes belly up and bankrupt? Well, the people had no recourse. And so we were, we were working with a ministry, a Dutch ministry actually, that had a, had a guest house on top of a bakery. And they were baking bread and we were taking bread and salami and cheese to the very, very poor and starving thousands of people in that Eastern European country were starving to death. It was spring, it was cold, it was drizzly and... The, the, we went to a complex all over Russia. You saw this. I was in the U- Ukraine very shortly after this as well. And you see these great projects that had started and they just abandoned them. So this was about a 15, 20 story apartment complex, but it was nothing but the slabs. It was a skeleton. And yet it was filled with hundreds of families. Who, who, were, who were just finding shelter from the rain. They had none against the cold. Any kind of makeshift uh, kind of living spaces that they had, they were living there. When we drove up with our little van full of bread and, and, and uh, sausage and, and cheese, not nearly enough to satisfy everyone they lined up. You've never seen a more miserable group of people. There were no smiles. There was no joviality. They weren't joking with each other. They were sad, and they were desperate, and they were starving to death. Blessed are the hungry? Really? Well, in those contexts, no. (laughs) In those contexts, absolutely not. There's nothing blessed about being hungry or or weeping in that sense. However, that's not the way that Jesus means it. He doesn't mean it in a physical sense. He means it in a spiritual sense. And the answer to my question, really is yes, really. Yes, in reality. In the reality that is God's reality, and in the way that Jesus is using these words, not only is it blessed to be in this state, it is positively glorious. And those, in the way that Jesus is using these terms, who are hungry and weeping, are the most blessed people on the planet. Now, we're just kind of moving into Luke's handling of the Sermon on the Mount. And I will continue to refer to it, even though it's a quite compressed version of the Sermon on the Mount. I'll continue to refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount, rather than the more academic Sermon on the Plain, which is what is commonly called. And that is just to emphasize the fact that we are following, we are, we are making the establishment that this is indeed Luke's version of that sermon that Matthew spends uh, his fifth through seventh chapters talking about. And the reason for that is because if it's the same sermon, then we can turn to Matthew's version 
version. And it's a little bit more expansive than Luke. And we can find a little bit of an explanation of what Luke... Sometimes it's more difficult to see. Now, I made the point last week when we talked about poverty, or blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. When we talked about that last week, I said, well, we don't even need Matthew to understand that what Jesus is talking about. But Matthew helps us because Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, to show us that indeed we are talking spiritual poverty and not physical poverty. So, with that said, I want to review, and that's the reason I read you verse 20, because these three sort of go together, as you'll see later on, these three Beatitudes. Now, the word Beatitude comes from the Latin word Beatus, which translates the Greek word makarios, and it's makarios that we translate blessed. And that's at the beginning of each of these Beatitudes. So I just want to remind you what that word means. Uh, the, the Sort of the breadth of the word real quickly. Well, and also what it doesn't mean. We, we talked about this last week. That in the early translations, English translations, sometimes it was translated happy. Happy are those who are poor. And that's just a horrible translation because a couple of reasons. First of all, happiness depends on happenstance. It depends on circumstance. And when the biblical blessedness we're talking about transcends circumstance and in fact sometimes stands in exact opposite opposition, totally opposite of the circumstance that you're in. So we can't really use the word happy to translate it in any age. And we also pointed out that in our age, it has become sort of a base pursuit that there's this entitlement that every person has a right to pursue their own happiness. And, and it's a self-aggrandizing type of association. So therefore, we, we really can't use that word to make the translation. But that doesn't mean that there's not a degree of happiness in the, the meaning of blessedness. I'll explain that in a moment. But also, we, we learned that we can't really look at these and say these are be attitudes as it is often taught, because that gives the impression that actually what we're saying is that if you strive for this attitude, then you will be blessed. And actually, that's kind of opposite of what they, they mean. To use the poverty angle, in other words, that would say, if you are poor, if you are self-imposed poor, poverty by your own hands, then that state will be a blessing by God. God will bless that. Well, that's exactly the opposite of, of what it means. In other words, what it is saying is that poverty, in the way that Jesus is using this, a spiritual poverty, bankrupt spiritually, is a divinely provided state of blessing. It's a state of being word, not some action word. You are in a state of blessedness when you are poor in the sense that Jesus is using the word, And that's going to hold true for the other um, uses that we are going to get. It is a state of being. You are blessed because you're poor. You are blessed because you're hungry. You are blessed because you weep. And we'll explain how that can possibly be true. But it also carries with it the idea of 
eschatological blessing or, or joy. There's a happiness, there's a joy that results from the blessedness. And the joy does not depend on your circumstances. That's why we can't use happy. But it is a joy that transcends all circumstances. So therefore, it is a joy that is here now in one sense. And it is a joy that will continue for those who are experiencing it now for an eternity as we are in the presence of God. So that's the, that's the basis of the meaning of makarios. It is a state of being rather than something that you strive for. Well, the other word that we um, defined last week was the word for poor. Uh, the word poverty, uh, or, or the idea of poverty. And, and so let me just quickly redefine it because I'm going to use it a little bit later on. The word that is used for poor speaks of an abject poverty, an absolute poverty, a poverty from which there is no escape, either because you have a disability or because you're under the oppression of some tyrant and being taxed out of existence. It is an impossible poverty. There is no way to alleviate the poverty that is being uh, expressed here. Therefore, if someone is in this level of poverty, there's only one thing they can do to sustain life, and that's to beg. That means that they are totally dependent upon the Grace, and I use that word advisedly because we're going to make this a spiritual analogy or a metaphor that we're talking about. They're totally dependent upon the grace or the benevolence or the provision of someone else because they're incapable of caring for themselves. The third thing that we noticed about poverty, and this was as far as the spiritual aspect of it, probably the most important. They know it. They're aware of their poverty. They know. It's, it's not the kind of poverty where, you know, some people would say, well, I never knew I was poor until somebody told me or until I saw something. Well, no, these people know they're poor. They know they're poor because they can't feed themselves. And therefore, they have to beg in order to have the very sustenance of life. So, obviously, even without Matthew, even though we don't look at Matthew's blessed are the poor in spirit, we know that that kind of poverty is not put forth as a virtue in Scripture. That, that is not something to aspire to. Nowhere, I mean, the Scripture talks about poverty a lot. God has a, a, a special place in his heart for poverty. The poor will always be with us. Christians are given the responsibility of looking out for the poor. But nowhere is that degree of poverty put forth as a virtue. So Jesus would never say, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So obviously there is a spiritual meaning, and the spiritual meaning is glorious. In the Reformed circles, we call it total depravity. When we go back to the nature of the degree of the poverty, it is an absolute spiritual brokenness. It is completely um, um, lost in sins. As Paul says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins cannot possibly help themselves. And that's the second aspect, the knowledge or the realization that you cannot, through anything that you do, fix 
what's wrong with you, the problem of sin. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Out of the spiritual poverty that we find ourselves in, there is no way out except by the grace of God through Jesus Christ as Son. That is his solution, his redemption for the problem that we face of our fallenness. And in that context, the most important thing is that you know it. Because when you know it, you recognize your need for a Savior. When you need a Savior, that is when you repent of your sins and you turn to Him to be the one who saves you rather than the arrogance of trying to save yourself, which is, of course, what most of the world is doing, either by being good people or by creating their own man-made gods. And so that's the, that was the foundation of what we learned about the first beatitude. It really talks about the state that all humanity is in. Now, the reason that those in that state are blessed when we kind of expand the meaning of the word poor is that they know it and they're blessed because of that spiritual bankruptcy. If you know that you can't save yourself, if you know that God can save you and you turn to God looking for benevolence and looking for mercy, pounding on your chest saying, God have mercy upon me as sinner, then you're blessed. Because you're not trying to save yourself, which is something that you can't do. So actually that poverty drives you to a place of tremendous blessing. And we're going to see in these next two that it's very similar to that. So let's take a look at them one by one. We'll actually use sort of the same modus operandi that we used last week. We're just going to define the terms. Because in the definition of the terms or the words, the meaning is going to come out. Now, we've already defined makarios, blessed, so we're not going to do that again. But notice the first one here in the 21st verse. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, before we get into the meaning of those words, I want you to notice the form of it. Um, Notice that there's a current condition. Luke emphasizes this by adding the word now in both of these. And the current condition differs dramatically from the future condition. Here and now you're hungry, you shall be satisfied. So there's an eschatological nature to this. There is something that's going on in the present and there's something that will be in the future. And the future is in many ways radically opposed or different than the situation you find yourself in in the present. And for those of you who don't freak out when I use the word grammar... Um, there's something else that is important here in the grammar. It will show in both of these Beatitudes, especially for believers. These are what are known as participles in in grammar. And those are special verbs. And they're verbs that are sort of kind of like a cross between a verb and a noun or a pronoun. And, and at the same time, there's a sense of ongoingness to it. This is a, a present participle. And what means that when Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry, or you who are hungry, he's saying, blessed are you in a state of hungering. It, it doesn't say, blessed are you because you used to hunger and now you don't hunger anymore because you've been saved 
Remember, he's talking to his disciples. His eyes were fixed upon his disciples, but behind his disciples, a vast crowd. So this is going to apply to both of them, both the unsaved and the saved. But to those who are closest to him, he's not saying, hey, blessed are you because you used to hunger, but now you're satisfied. He's saying, blessed are you who continually hunger in the sense that he's using it. Now, hunger is, is, I am told, that it is your stomach talking to your brain. That literally, when your stomach starts to go empty, it begins to tell your brain that it's empty so that your brain will do the logical thing, which is to get more food and put it in the stomach. Now, I'm also told that the stomach doesn't wait till you're completely empty to start talking to your brain. As soon as any section of your stomach is empty, well, the stomach starts telling the brain, hey, I'm empty, and you better start thinking about filling this up in in some way. It's a word that can mean famished, it can mean starved, it can mean weak, it can mean faint, but pretty much all having to do with this idea of sustenance, the idea of having what is needed in the body. So there's a couple of ideas that go along with the word hunger that we want to see. First of all, it speaks of now, by the way, whenever we talk about the word in its physical sense, you should be thinking a spiritual metaphor in your back of your head because that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. This is a spiritual metaphor, but it's a spiritual metaphor using a word that has richness in its physical sense. So, there is a primordial necessity here. There is a necessity to feed oneself, and that's what the stomach is telling the brain, that you're hungry and you need to take care of this fuel situation. Because if you don't, then there are going to be severe consequences. This is not something you can ignore for very long. This is something that you have to take care of. So this is something that is very necessary, okay? You are, it is necessary so that you don't eventually fall out because you have no sustenance in your body. It is also intense in its nature. In other words, there is a point that it grows in intensity. And there's kind of like a time limit on it. You can only go so far without eating, so far starving and emaciated before you reach the point of no return when there's nothing yet you can do. So therefore, there's an intensity to it. In other words, you need food and you need it now. That's wrapped up in this idea of hunger. Now, I realize this, and I don't mean to be condescending in this, but I realize that most of us, this word is kind of wasted on. I mean, because most of us, we don't experience the kind of hunger that Jesus is talking about. Certainly, the people he's talking to did. Because they were an agrarian society, and in an agrarian society, if the rain doesn't fall for a year in an arid place like Palestine, people begin to die. They begin to starve to death because there are no government facilities for taking care, for giving them the food that they need. And so most of us, that we, we understand the word, but we haven't experienced it. 
and as, again, I'm not trying to be condescending, but this is going to be most of us. Like, for instance, when, whenever I experience hunger in this sense, well, it's usually self-imposed. I, I'm either fasting, there's a, a religious reason for my hunger, or I'm dieting because I've gotten too heavy and I need to take a couple of pounds off, so I'm depriving myself in that way. Or because I just get too busy and I forget to eat. Or or because I'm someplace like out in the wilds of Haiti and I don't have any food that's with me and I sometimes have to go all day long without eating. Well, I experience that kind of hunger. But I, I, I also can walk to the refrigerator, open it up and the hunger's over because I have the accessibility of what is needed to eradicate the hunger. But... Not so necessarily in the way that Jesus is using this word. I I haven't experienced hunger, but I've seen it. And and it's never... It's, it's, it's never pretty. There, there's never any virtue to it. I've seen people fight over a crust of bread or, 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 or a bowl of rice. I've been in a situation where we were trying to feed children in a destitute uh, area where there was famine and the parents coming in and literally grabbing the food right out of their children's mouths to feed themselves before they would allow their children to be fed. Of course, you know the horror stories in Scripture of people under siege and they actually begin to eat their children. Horrible thought, but you see, I've seen hunger drive people to riot and large groups of people acting horribly, forgetting all of their social mores. Well, they do things that they're quite ashamed of. But what this points out is that we're dealing with a necessity. We're dealing with something that without which you die. And so we're dealing with something that is an intensity to it. So the reason I'm putting it in those terms is I want you to see something. Jesus is not putting that forward as a virtue. He's not saying that kind of hunger is a blessing. So obviously, he's talking about something else. And and, and I want to kind of put on hold the something else until we look at the other word in this beatitude that we want to discuss, which is satisfied. Okay? Blessed are you if you're hungry now, if you're in a state of hunger, an ongoing state of hunger. Blessed are you if you're hungry now because you shall be satisfied. Interesting words. We have to be careful when we do exegesis that's trying to find the meaning of a word. Uh, um, there, there are several fallacies that we can, we can uh, commit. And one of them is to take the meaning of a word that it had in antiquity past and try to apply it to the word now or the word in another period of time because it might have morphed. So I'm not doing that, but I think it's interesting to trace the root of this word back. Because the root of the word for satisfied is a word that originally talked about feeding animals and feeding them to fatten them up for obvious reasons. And then later on in Greek plays, early Greek plays still, it was used sort of as an ironic statement because um, it talked about people who were gluttonous and who were feeding themselves like starved animals, if you will. But that's not the way that Luke is using the word here. He's using the word to talk about being filled, being complete, and and actually being filled 
in a certain way. When we talk about what it means to be satisfied. When we talk about being satisfied in this sense, it reverses whatever needs to be done that's satisfying. In other words, if we're talking about hunger, then the word satisfy means that the hunger has been reversed. Whatever the problem was, that has now been reversed. So the the state of satisfaction that now we're talking about is a state that is absolutely opposite and the reverse of the situation that existed before, the abject hunger that someone would go through. It, It also speaks of a complete satisfaction. In other words, a man who is starving would appreciate a piece of bread. But that's not going to satisfy him. In fact, he needs a meal, a sumptuous meal. Actually, probably several sumptuous meals before he would be saturated or satiated or satisfied in this way. Um, It's it's to fill it all the way up. Just to use your car as a metaphor, you know, when you run out of gas, your car starts sputtering and you know that you're empty. So you pull into the gas station and you put a quarter of a tank in. Well, that's going to get you going on your way, but that's not satisfying that gas tank. If you put a half a tank in, that's not satisfying it. You have to fill it to the brim to where it's almost leaking out the, 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 the side of your car. Now it's satisfied. You're absolutely, completely filled to the brim with what it is that needs is needed for satisfaction. And the last thing that we want to see about this word that I think is very revealing is that the satisfaction or the filling is specific to what is needed. In other words, there, there, there is a desperate need and the satisfaction refers to that need being eradicated. For instance, if you... And I've seen this happen more than once, uh, uh, where you have people who are starving to death, all right, and, and, and a team comes in with shoes and, and passes out shoes. Well, guess what? Everybody's real happy because they didn't have any shoes, but they can't eat the shoes. Their need is for food. Now, they may sell the shoes to get food, but you see, the, the, the satisfaction is to fulfill whatever the need was, whatever the desire was, whatever it is that is missing is specific when you talk about satisfaction. Okay? So let's put this in a spiritual context because I think that you can already see what we're talking about. Jesus is not talking about physical hunger. He's using it as a metaphor. Blessed are you if you hunger for God now. I mean, let's go to Matthew. It's very helpful. Blessed are those who, what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay? Blessed are you if you hunger, not for the things of this world, not for food, but if you are hungering for God, if that is your deep need, if that is what has to be fulfilled in you, you are in a state of blessing. That kind of hunger is an absolute blessing. Do you know why? Are you thinking? Do you have your thinking caps on, why would this be such a blessing? Why would it be a blessing to be spiritually hungry? Because only the redeemed are spiritually hungry, folks. No one chases after God. That's what Paul says in Romans. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so, therefore, if you're hungering after God, 
You didn't do that because you're just a good person. You didn't do that because you're more spiritual than the person next to you. You are doing that because the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart and you have been born again. And you desire God. And there is nothing on this planet that is more blessed than that. Blessed are you now if you hunger after God. For you will be satisfied. You will be filled to the brim. You will be filled to overflowing. The exact need that you have, which is the need for a holy God in relationship with Him, is the exact need that will be supplied to you. How can I possibly say that with assurance? Because it's not you and it's not me who's going to supply that need. It is God. And you don't care about him. You run from him. You're afraid of him. You try to hide under the rock in the darkness. You try to create your own kinder, gentler God. You are not in love with God. You are not pursuing him. You do not want him. You do not hunger after him. Unless you're saved. Unless you're redeemed. Unless you're born again. And there's no one on the planet that's more blessed than that. That is why I say this is positively and absolutely glorious. Well, we have more to say about that, but let's go on and take a look at the second beatitude because it's very, very similar to the first. Jesus says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, once again, notice the form, same kind of form I talked about before. There's a condition that you're in right now of weeping. And then there's a future condition that is absolutely opposite of the one that you experience now. And that is the laughing. I love that. We'll get to that in a minute. But the weeping is, is apparently in the current. It could have something to do with your circumstances. There's lots of things that are going to go into the idea of weeping, which I'll bring out in just a moment. But also, I want you to see something else. Brothers and sisters, remember Jesus has his eyes fixed on his disciples. And this is another participle. Sorry for the grammar. But it is another one of those words that means ongoing. Blessed are you who are continuing in a state of weeping. The word weeping is pretty straightforward. It's kind of a specific word though in the way that it is used. Um, It it means to cry. It it means to have an, an external manifestation of an internal turmoil. It, 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 it speaks of, of a, uh, some kind of anguish that, that is so great that it cannot be held anymore on the inside. It is going to manifest itself on the outside. Now, the reason for the pain can be multiple. It can be a, a catastrophe. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be a lost relationship. It can be a physical problem. It can be emotional, mental, spiritual anguish. There are many different reasons why people would weep in this way or wail in this way, cry out in this way, but there are, they're, 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 they all have this external visual manifestation. Now, in the Old Testament, the word sort of takes on direction because it's used quite a bit. And most of the places that it is used, it speaks of crying out 
to God. Okay, God is the, is the focus of the crying out. He, he's the focus of the weeping, okay? So you're crying out to God for whatever the situation is that might exist. Now, what I want to do is I want to immediately go to the spiritual meaning here because we're not going to understand anything that is said unless we get this into its spiritual meaning. What does it mean when Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now? Blessed are you who are miserable? Blessed are you who are suffering? No, no, there's no virtue in that kind of weeping. But there is a tremendous blessing here. We've already learned this. We learned it earlier. And if we were reading right through this book of Luke, it would be very, very recent in our minds. Remember when Jesus healed the paralytic? You remember when he didn't say your sins, I mean, he didn't say pick up your bed and walk. He said your sins are forgiven. And, and so he, he basically made, gives us the understanding that all sickness, whether it's disease, disability, deformity, demon possession, or death itself, no matter what it is, underlying all of it is the problem of sin with a capital S. So no matter what the reason for the weeping, brothers and sisters, on this earth, no matter what the cause, the immediate cause is, there is an underlying condition that is the reason for all weeping, and it is sin. You may remember in John 11, when Jesus was standing outside of the tomb of his dearly beloved friend, Lazarus, and everyone around him is weeping, the same word used there. And we know that Jesus knows what he's doing. He purposely waited for the fourth day to where the body started to to decompose so there couldn't be any mistake about what he did. We know that he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that Mary and Martha and all the rest of them are about to be thrilled and are going to laugh like crazy when they see their brother alive again. And yet Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Different word for weep, but the same principle. So what does it mean? Why did Jesus weep? Well, he wept because he has compassion, of course. We tend to do that. We weep when people around us weep. We laugh when people around us laugh. But there was something deeper, you see. This is an unnatural situation as far as God is concerned. He didn't make us this way. He didn't make us to die. He didn't make us so that death took us and put us in a tomb and decomposed our bodies. He didn't make us so that we would weep and cry and go through such mental, emotional, and spiritual anguish. He didn't make us that way. He knows that the whole reason that we, that we cry and weep is because of sin. And he has come to eradicate sin. He has come to deal with the very reason that we weep. And so therefore, underlying This whole idea is the idea of sin. Okay? Now, let's take a look at that in a spiritual context again. Why would people laugh? Because of their weeping. Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now. How, would you, how can you say you're blessed? Once again, we know that this is not in the physical sense because there's no virtue in weeping this way. There's nothing good about it. So Jesus isn't saying you weep hard, get really sick, get really upset, get really sad, and you'll be blessed because of it. That's back, that doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense in a spiritual sense because who weeps, folks? As far as sin is concerned, who weeps over their sin? 
Only the redeemed. Only people who've been saved. I mean, what happens when you get saved? What happens? Well, you become mortified over your sin. Just the littlest thing, stuff that you didn't think about twice before you were saved. Now, all of a sudden, you're completely mortified about it. I can't believe I did that to the God I love. People don't do that unless they're saved, folks. People don't do that unless they've been born again, and unless they've been regenerated, unless the Holy Spirit is there. And so therefore, blessed are you if you are mortified and weeping over your sin because you are saved and you are the most blessed people on the face of this planet. Blessed are those who weep for you will laugh. Just absolutely love this. I do. I mean, Matthew is great. He says, blessed are those who mourn for you will be comforted. And comforting is good. But I really like the way that it's put here. I like the idea of laughing. Because it's a broad word. It can mean many different things. In fact, it can mean anything from a lighthearted chuckle to a scornful snicker and everything in between. And there's, in many ways that it is used, it is used with a lot of irony in it. Do you remember, you remember Sarah, way going way back, uh, Abraham, Sarah, when she overheard the angel telling Abraham, you're going to have a son when I come back? And she's like 90. <laughs> and remember what she said? She said this, if I can find it. She says, so Sarah laughed to herself and saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And she even names her son, Laughter. Okay, that's kind of an ironic, sort of, sort of a sarcastic laugh, if you will. It can also be used almost in the sense of the last laugh. The uh, uh, psalmist puts it this way. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. They're laughing. They have the last laugh. They're laughing at us because of our uh, uh, misfortune. But that's not the way that Jesus or Luke is using the word now. He's talking about um, undiminished, irrepressible joy. The joy that just like the weeping can't hold itself inside of you, just like it has to be a physical manifestation on the outside of you, the joy also has to come out in some way. I mean, it is such joy that you're going to have laughter that's going to point it out. Um, Brother Will read from Jeremiah earlier from the 13th verse of that 31st chapter. God speaking, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. David absolutely nails it in the 30th Psalm when he says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Notice the difference in the situation that exists and the situation that will exist, the eschatological nature of this joy. There will be a time, brothers and sisters, when there are no more tears. There is no more sorrow. There is no more death, no more sickness, no more sin. And at that time, there will be no weeping. We will just simply throw back our heads and laugh. As we read, weep no more in Revelation 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. In fact, if there is any hint, and I already told you to be careful about exegetical fallacies, I don't want to do that. But if there's any hint of some of those other meanings, like that last laugh idea of laughing, it would be this. 
Because everyone who is redeemed, everyone who is blessed, everyone who is born again will get the last laugh on sin. That sin that has held you captive your whole life. You fight against it. You struggle with you. It makes you miserable. You cry. You're mortified. You weep over your sin before a holy God that you love. And that sin that held you captive has now gone into the lake of fire and will be no more. And that, con- that son of God, the Lion of Judah, has conquered that sin. And so there's nothing left to do but to laugh. And that's the last laugh. Oh, brothers and sisters, what beautiful words these are. Well, as I said, if we go back and we go back to the beginning of that 20th verse, Jesus has a broad audience here. He's talking to his disciples, but he's also talking to everyone else. So there's a message here, not only for believers, but for unbelievers, and especially those of you who Listen, if you're still listening to me by now, it's an amazing thing. So, you know, you're either forced to be here or you're interested. The Lord is bringing you out of darkness. He's beginning to, to, to give you some of the ideas of, 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 of a need for salvation. And if that is you, then this is one of the most beautiful, simple, straightforward presentations of the good news of the kingdom of God that you're going to find. Because at first it starts out with the state that you're in. It starts out with your physical, not physical, but your spiritual poverty. And, and you may have never known you were poor like this before. You think you're a pretty good person. Now all of a sudden you're finding that there is a, there's a, a, a desperation that, that you don't, you're not as good of a person as you thought you were. That you have this sort of hole in you. You're starting to worry about what's going to happen to you when you die. And you start worrying about whether or not you're going to be acceptable to a holy God that you thought you held in the palm of your hand. Well, that poverty, if it leads you, if it drives you to repentance, is a blessing. That spiritual bankruptcy that so often is felt before we actually come into the presence of God. You may be discovering for the very first time that there's an ache inside of you that you don't quite understand, but it's primordial. It's a necessity. It's growing and it's more intense than you ever thought it could be. There's a hole in your heart, in your soul, and you need to fill it. Now, you might have tried other things, other religions, alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever you can find to fill that hole, and nothing has worked, and it's hurting you, and it's festering. And you're realizing now that the only thing that will ever fill that hole is God himself because God is the one who made it. You're already hungering after God. That's a good thing. That's a blessing. Because only those people that God is pulling out of darkness actually hunger for Him. Have a great desire for Him. And as I said, you might for the first time be recognizing that you are a sinner. Oh, you thought you were pretty good. Boy, I thought I was a pretty good person before I got saved. And as soon as I got saved, boy, I realized I am the bottom of the barrel. And I was mortified over my sinfulness. That's a blessing. You're blessed if you're mortified because you realize there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to fix the situation that you are in. This life is short and there's going to be a time that you stand before a holy and a righteous God in judgment and in wrath. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord at that time. And you're realizing that there's a necessity and an intensity to the hunger that you're feeling. May God bless you with a true understanding. And my prayer is that he will pull you all the way out because he's the one that's got to do it. That he will bring you out and you will come to know the blessing of trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior.
But then there's the focus, those disciples. And Jesus is talking to them. And, and, and I say this quite often, it is my prayer that most of you are those disciples already with an assurance of your own salvation and already given your heart and lives to Christ. Well, what is Jesus saying to us? What, what, what is the focus? And, 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 and why does he word it these ways? And, and why is he talking to his disciples? Well, obviously he's preparing them with the ammunition to share what I just shared, which is the gospel, because that's what they're going to do. But I think there's something more. In fact, I think it answers one of the great questions that we as Christians have. You see, I noticed something about Christians. I notice it about myself. I fight it constantly. But I notice it quite often about people. Is that, especially those who come to know the Lord later in life, oh man, they are filled with fire. There is a hunger that they just, I mean, they're like sponges. I mean, there's an insatiable hunger for the things of God. They're right here on the front row every single time. Every time the doors open, they're here in church and Bible studies and prayer meetings. I mean, they're fellowshipping, they're serving, they're doing everything that they can do. And there is such an intensity to their hunger for God and for the things of God. And, and, and they weep over their sins because they recognize who they were and what they were. And the God has come into their lives and saved them and forgiven them and given them the righteousness of Christ. And they're just overwhelmed with that. And that governs their life. But then something begins to happen. It's like the fire starts to dwindle. And, and it, is, it never goes out. can't go out because you didn't start it. But it dwindles. And, and then it, it, it almost seems something horrible happens part of it. It almost seems like the weeping stops. Like, like you're not upset about your sins anymore. And, 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 and you're not mortified anymore about the state that you're in. It's like almost, well, I was hungry and I was weeping. And then I got saved and now everything is fine. And I'm a good person and Jesus has got me in hand. And I don't need to be on fire anymore. Well, that's not the way it works, folks. That's not the way it's supposed to work. In other words, you're supposed to be on a crescendo. That's what sanctification means. In other words, your hunger for God should be increasing. You should be that much more hungry now than you were when you first came to know Him. You're weeping over your sinfulness. It should be more intense right now than it ever was. You should be seeing yourself in a, in, in a brighter light with a bigger mirror than you ever had before. And you're weeping constantly. Now, of course, at the same time, you have even more assurance of Him. You you believe him and you're stronger in him. But I, I, I see people going the other direction. And I wonder why. And, and, and I think that if we look at this, we can tell what that reason is. And that is that the enemy is really good at what he does. And if he can satiate you, if he can saturate you with the wrong things, if he can fill you up to where you're not hungry anymore, then even though it's the wrong thing, after a while... You lose your taste for the good things. You, those of you who have dieted before and you, and you know that you've got to get off sugar or you've got to get off fat or something, you know that if you deprive yourself of whatever it is for two weeks, you lose your taste for it. And your body doesn't crave it anymore like it did when it started. 
Well, unfortunately, it's the same thing for the things of God. If you're not hungering for the things of God and you start to satiate yourself with the things of this world, then all of a sudden you gain more of a taste for those things than you do for the things of God. And after a while, you almost lose your taste for that. Great story, I think, of this out of the book of Daniel. You remember that? Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and their Babylonian names stolen from Israel and taken to Babylon, which, by the way, is just like the picture of worldliness. And, and, and they're going to make little magicians out of him, little sorcerers out of him. And so they gave him a great privilege. They're going to eat the same food that, that the king eats from his table and the same wine that he gets. I mean, that's like you've arrived when you get to eat that stuff. But you see... Daniel and his friends knew that, no, some of that stuff we're not allowed to eat. And even the stuff that we're not allowed to eat is not good for you. And so, therefore, would you give us vegetables and water? You know, they could have easily said, would you give us the bread of life and the living water? Because that's what we need. That's how we need to fill ourselves. That's what we need to saturate ourselves. That's what we're hungry for. And we want to remain hungry for the things that are good for us. Most parents, not all. But most parents know that they've got to train their children's appetites as they grow up. Because if you leave a child to his self or herself, what will they do? Well, they're going to eat candy and donuts and ice cream and cake and Cokes. Maybe a potato chip or some french fries here and there. But they're not going to eat broccoli and spinach. Because that's good for them. And, and, and I don't like the way it tastes. And so I'm going to gravitate towards the things that are no good for me. And so if I develop a taste for that, if I'm filled with cake and, and cookies and stuff like that, I'm not going to eat my spinach. I'm not even going to have a taste for it. Brothers, sisters, I think that's what happens to us. You see, we start tasting the things of the world just little by little. You know, not, not much at first. And, and, and then more and more we start developing a taste for that. And, and we want more. And, and I don't care what it is. You know the things of the world. It can be good things like family or relationships. Or it can be bad things like money or fame or sex or drugs or whatever it is that you're pursuing to fill your life. These are things that the world says develop a taste for these. And if you develop a taste for them, then you're no longer hungry for the things of God. And when you're no longer hungry for the things of God, you stop weeping over your sins. And you start compromising. And you start finding gray areas where once it was just light and dark. So brothers and sisters, here's what we've got to do. You've got to throw out the things that you're eating that are not good for you. And you've got to concentrate on the good food. And it's no mystery what the good food is, the means of grace, studying God's word, spending time in prayer, spending time in fellowship, spending time in service, spending time worshiping God amongst God's people, spending time in, in, in the endeavors, taking the Lord's Supper, spending time in the endeavors that are fulfilling or are satisfying the hunger that you have for God. And guess what happens when you start doing that? Man, oh man, do you start to weep again. You know, there's this total misconception, folks, that the farther and long you walk with God, the, the better you are and the less you have to 
be mortified for your sins. I don't know if that happens to you, but it didn't happen to me. I am so much more mortified by, by my sins. I have to kind of stop myself because I will go into this, uh, this whole self-loathing type of thing because I cannot believe that I do the things that I do or that I think the things that I think far more than it was when I first got saved. So in other words, the weeping over our sinfulness needs to get more acute, needs to get more fine-tuned to the things that we do spiritually. So brothers and sisters, if you find yourself yearning for things of this world, if you find yourself yearning for the bigger house, the bigger car, the boat, the, the vacations, the, the, the better relationships, all the things that make you happy in this world. And I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm not saying that you should deny yourself of them, of them. But if you find yourself yearning for them, if that's where your hunger lies, that's a danger sign. That's a danger sign that you're losing your taste for the things of God. And, and, and if you start compromising, if you start finding yourself kind of rationalizing with yourself when before you would really draw the line, you know something, the Sabbath is the Lord's day. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to give to the Lord. I'm going to do service. I'm going to fellowship. I'm going to worship. I'm going to do all these things. If you find yourself rationalizing those things out, well, it's okay if I don't do it. That's a danger sign, Okay. You're already in that, in that mode where you can put aside the hunger for God's things and the weeping for sins, which is exactly what the enemy wants you to do. Okay, so I can wrap this whole thing up in the same way that I wrapped last week up for those of you who were here. Everything that I have just said can be codified in one single verse. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. And after you throw out the things you're hungry for in this world. And replace them for the good things of God. And after you start weeping again. Mortified for your sins. Kick back. Throw back your head. And with uncontrollable joy laugh because heaven is yours amen let's pray dear Lord we're thankful amen thank you so much dear Lord for the direction you give us in your word and thank you that at the same time that you can share the gospel with those who don't know you on the simplest way you can teach us deep lessons And so we're in awe of you. We're in awe of your words. Help us, each and every one of us, especially those who already know you and profess you, that we would pursue you and pursue the things of the kingdom. Seek you first. Because if we do, we're going to hunger after those things. And if we hunger after those things, we're going to weep over our sins. And if we weep over our sins, dear Lord, then we will trust in you more and if we trust in you more we know our hope is in you and if our hope is in you then our eternity is in you and if our eternity is in you and secure then lord there's nothing left for us to do but to laugh to laugh with the most uncontrollable unchecked unmitigated joy and we praise you for that in jesus name we pray